Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Deblaine Chakraborty. And, you know, when you think about historical pirates, you usually picture the Pirates of the Caribbean, Johnny Depp variety, scoundrels, social deviants, basically working by themselves in a every-ship-for-itself type capacity, trying to add to or protect their store of bounty. Usually, in my imagination at least, that's some big treasure chest. Spanish galleon. Yeah. Something like that. Overflowing with gold. And the pirates of the past that we hear about, they're also most often from the West, and they're usually men. Yeah, I guess unless Kara Knightley turns pirate <laughs> in like the second or third movie. That's true. There's always sequels to help out. But piracy also flourished for a while on the other side of the world in the South China Sea. It was kind of during the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th, around 1790 to 1810, there in, in that range. And it grew at that time to become this great menace in that area, transformed from being just a few small-scale Chinese pirates who were working on their own to a huge pirate confederation that was actually a big, lucrative business. Yeah. And Dion H. Murray, who's the author of a book called Pirates of the South China Coast, he gives us a few reasons for why that happened. Why did this really take off at this time? The first reason is that there were some particular ecological conditions that contributed to it. Um, the ecological conditions, they allowed petty piracy, the piracy that existed before it really blew up to kind of flourish. Small scale piracy. Small scale, exactly. Also, pirate participation in a Vietnamese rebellion around 1786 helped the situation as well because Chinese pirates, they learned to work together. They got together to help the Vietnamese rebels and saw that cooperation between them was finally possible. But perhaps most importantly, there were several farsighted leaders that emerged around this time who were able to kind of bring all these pirate gangs, so to speak, together. And the most notable and influential among these was probably Chung Yi Sao, who as a woman was definitely not your typical pirate leader. Yeah, and if you've listened to Molly and Kristen's recent episode on female pirates for Stuff Mom Never Told You, you know that she's not the only female pirate in history. There's Anne Bonny, Mary Reed, you know, they're probably the more famous names. In fact, we get a lot of suggestions for those two as well. Um, Rachel Wall, who worked off the coast of Maine. I mean, there are definitely, definitely a few other famous female pirates. But Chung Yi Sao, who is also known as Madam Chung and sometimes called the Dragon Lady, thus the title, uh, was definitely one of the most successful of these female pirates. And that was partly because she had some really, really good business sense. And she was brutal about it, but she, she knew what she was doing and she knew how to get a team of pirates to work together. And that ultimately, that good business sense ultimately helped her run this entire pirate confederation and eventually come out of it a lot better than not just most women pirates, but most pirates in general. Definitely. That said, though, she did appear to have some humble beginnings, although we, we're not really sure about them. We don't really know much about her early life. She was born in 1775, but she enters the pirate world by becoming the wife of a pirate leader, Chung Yi. Now, Chung Yi's family had been involved in piracy since the 17th century. He himself, according to some, was the son of a peasant, a hunchback who was turned out and forced to turn pirate because his father basically couldn't 
feed him, couldn't pay to support him anymore. So he became one of the principal founders of this pirate confederation and eventually emerged as its leader. Yeah, and accounts vary here, but most of them say that Chung Yi's bride was a prostitute named either Shi Yang or Shi Kai, um, depending on which account you're looking at. Um, and supposedly she worked on one of the flower boats, which were floating brothels in the harbor and came into contact with this pirate leader that way. Um, author Myra Weatherly wrote in Women Pirates, Eight Stories of Adventure, that she had another sort of background, maybe something a little more interesting than just a random lady off of one of these flower boats. Right. Here's another story about how Chung Yi and Chung Yi Sao could have gotten together. When Chung Yi was ready to take a wife, 20 bound and captured females were brought to him. One was a peasant girl named Shi Kai who had the skin, the tint of rich cream, but at the cheek was deep rose. This is how she was described. And it was said that before the beauty of her face, the eyes of men grew confused. So quite the knockout. Smitten with her, Chung has her untied. But what he doesn't realize is that her feet aren't deformed by binding like some Chinese women at the time's feet were. So once she was free, she lunged and attacked him and had to be pulled away by other people. Future pirate indeed. Right. So somehow this doesn't deter her suitor at all. He offers her everything that you would think a girl at that time would want. Jewelry, cosmetics, brightly colored silks and slaves of her own. If only she will promise to marry him. But she holds out, doesn't she? She does. She wants more. She only agrees to marry him if he'll give her half of his wealth and joint command of his entire pirate fleet. So It makes a good story, and we don't know for sure whether it's all true or not. But what we do know is that Chung Yi's wife, who became known as Chung Yi Sao, which literally means wife of Chung, pretty straightforward there, uh, she did come to help him run the Pirate Confederation, whether or not she owns half of it officially. And the Pirate Confederation is really quite impressive. It's composed of six principal fleets, red, yellow, blue, green, black, Black and white. They have sort of a Captain Planet kind of vibe going <laughs> on, I guess. And um, she's not just a silent partner in this this uh, confederation either. She really plays an active role. Yeah, she actually ran one of the fleets, I think one of the bigger ones, and she was really good at it too by most accounts. Her signature strategy was to take the enemy by surprise and then overpower them with hand-to-hand combat. So here's kind of what she did. Basically, the vessels that they used were called junks. They were these flat-bottomed boats that had sails, and you'll hear us refer to them like that throughout the podcast. And these were really great for speed and navigation in shallow waters. Pirates, by the way, often preferred these shallow waters because it was less treacherous than being out at sea. Which and also something that doesn't really jive with how we normally think of pirates sailing across the ocean. Right. We imagine these big battles that happen in the middle of the ocean. But no, actually, they st- stuck a lot closer to the coast because that was actually part of their business, too. They would have team up with bandits and have raids on land as well. So Madame Chung would conceal most of her junks behind a long strip of land jetting out into the sea and send a couple out as decoys. Then, after making initial contact with whatever boat they're about to attack, she would send out the remaining ships to attack. So a big surprise attack all of a sudden with all of these junks coming out. And another thing that not just she did, but other Chinese pirates of the time, they'd use these bamboo pikes uh, with saber-like blades. So that would be pretty scary if you suddenly had a, a bunch of junks surprisingly coming out of nowhere with these 
spike blades. And then they'd also fill large boats with straw and set them on fire and just sort of push them out into the middle of combat. So their um, their enemies would be frightened by boats aflame. Yeah, that also sounds pretty intimidating. They would also hurl firebrands at enemy sails, so not something that you would want to see coming your way if yeah. you were on the water. And the pirates would also get themselves hyped up for these events. They would drink a mixture of wine and gunpowder when going into battle, and apparently they would just look crazy coming at you. With their you know, blades. Maybe it was just the wine. I don't know. Maybe it was just <laughs> the wine. What effect gunpowder would have? What positive effect gunpowder would have? You seem to have some special knowledge of this, perhaps, Sarah. <laughs> Thankfully not. Um, oh, another thing I, I fortunately don't have any special knowledge of is eating the hearts of vanquished foes. Which is was, that really unfortunate <laughs> that you don't have any knowledge of that? So I think I'd be in a lot of trouble if I had knowledge about that. Um, but yeah, they would do this to work up their courage, you know, so have some hearts, have some wine and gunpowder, and then go out there with your bamboo pikes. Yeah, and you wouldn't be going out there without any sort of luck on your side either, because the pirates actually sprinkled themselves with garlic water as a charm to ward off bullets. So, so they were know, pretty well covered. They're not taking any chances. No, and and clearly they're successful with all of these strategies, because by 1804, the Chung's Confederation included about 400 junks and 70,000 men. So that is quite a fleet of pirates to, to man. And they even draw up a constitution in 1805, because if you have all of these different pirates, you know, it's a good idea to have some sort of document that governs them. All of the different pirate leaders sign the constitution, and it makes Chung Yi the chief admiral. Yeah, so we can see them getting more and more organized as they go along, and that was just a few years into it. By 1807, though, Chung Yi dies, and it's likely that he was blown overboard in a gale and drowned. That's the typical story that you see around. Doesn't protect against. No, doesn't protect against the gales. Apparently. So the Chinese pirates they met to elect a new leader, and again, this is. Kind of legend, we're not exactly sure how accurate this is, but it's said that Madame Chung showed up at this meeting dressed in a chief's uniform, in the chief's uniform, that is, her husband's former uniform, which was a robe of purple, blue, red, and gold, and it was embroidered all over with dragons. Which suits her nickname. Right, and she wore some of her dead husband's swords along with this and his war helmet. And when she appeared before the men, she told them, quote, Look at me, captains. Your departed chief sat in council with me. Your most powerful fleet, the white, under my command, took more prizes than any others did. Do you think I will bow to any other chief? And they did not. She took command, virtually uncontested, but to secure her position, she knew that she needed to get someone to assist her in managing the daily operations of the Red Fleet specifically. It was especially large, had anywhere from 20,000 to 40,000 men, and she needed this to be someone who could win over the rank-and-file pirates and who would remain absolutely loyal to her. So these two things were essential. So for this role, she picked Chung Pao, her adopted son, Chung Pao was a fisherman's son who had joined the pirates at 15 after having been captured by Chung Yi. 
And Cheng Yi really took a liking to Chong Pao. He liked him so much, in fact, this was a quote, he liked him so much that he could not depart from him. So seems like there's a little bit of an emotional tie there, yeah, to and, say the least. And he becomes his protege. So there's maybe a dual relationship going on. Yeah, he becomes his protege. And it's also said that they might have had some sort of homosexual liaison or relationship. I'm not sure how extensive it was, if it was just something to kind of draw Chung Pao into the Inner pirate. Circle. Yeah, into the pirate fold or or if it was an actual relationship, but there was that there. Yeah, and Madam Chung also takes a liking to this young man and selects him. She thinks he will be loyal, and to seal the deal, she also has sex with him, and they become lovers, and later, even husband and wife. So it's another pirate partnership again. Yeah, and just a strange twist, since he goes from being her adopted adopted son. son. (laughs) Yeah, I know, it's kind of... A little uncomfortable. Yeah, I'd we don't want to think about that one too much. <laughs> but such as it was, Chung Pao actually proved to be a really businesslike and effective leader. It said that he was charismatic and he wore this flamboyant outfit. It was a purple silk robe along with a black turban. And he was also really superstitious. Like all pirates, he would pray before they went out for any sort of attack or plundering. And if the omens were bad, they basically wouldn't go. That would be a sign that the mission was a no-go. I mean, I think that's interesting. It's another thing you can think of pirates as just being kind of drunken and crazed, but a lot of planning and superstition going into something. Thought and religion here, too. I mean, they prayed diligently. Yeah, it's it's kind of surprising to see. But once um, Madam Chung's position was secure, you know, once she had this this number two and the Confederation was solid, she consolidated the Confederation further by issuing a code of laws that regulated operations, uh, just regulated operations regarding just about everything in pirate life really keeping people in check. And the code was severe, too, as you would expect a pirate code to be. Uh, A few examples from it. Anyone caught giving commands on his own or disobeying those of a superior was to be immediately decapitated. No flogging, no warning or something. Immediately off with their heads. Yeah, and a pirate who went ashore without permission would have his ears slit. Doing it again meant certain death. And pilfering from the common treasury was also frowned upon, as was stealing from villagers who were on the pirate's side, you know, who who supplied them, uh, had worked out some sort of arrangement with the pirates. Those were capital offenses. Yeah, and interestingly, if a pirate raped a female captive, he was put to death. And, you know, this goes back to what you were saying. You imagine pirates, that they're just all really rough-mannered, and they, you expect for things to go on like that, raping and so forth. But nope. That was not allowed. And even if they had sex by mutual consent, the man was beheaded and the woman was cast overboard with a weight attached to her leg. So low tolerance for any sort of funny business. Definitely. And we should mention the concubines and the wives and and the women they captured a little more, too, especially because we are talking about a woman pirate. But usually pirates would take the most beautiful captives as their concubines or wives and the less pretty ones would be returned to the shore and others might be ransomed if they had some kind of good family connections. And if a pirate chose a wife from one of the captives, he was supposed to be loyal to her. And I mean, that's another surprise. These pirates are just like loaded with surprises, like these boats coming out of nowhere. Um, It's interesting that promiscuity was not encouraged. It was not even allowed. Yeah, it makes me wonder, and I 
wasn't able to find too much on this, but whether Madame Chung herself was holding fidelity in such high esteem or if it was just a pirate rule that was more ubiquitous. Yeah, that would be interesting to, to find out. In this situation, male captives, on the other hand, were kept as manpower. They weren't really released uh, besides Westerners who were being held for ransom. So they kind of became part of the pirate fold, too, although it doesn't seem like they had many rights. The other major thing that Madam Chung did as leader was really make piracy function as a business. So we want to get into that a little bit. Just a little background on how the pirates made their profits in the first place. They did so through, as you would imagine, outright piracy, plundering ships, for example, which Cheng referred to as the transshipping of goods, which sounds like some term you'd learn in a business class. It sounds like it's supposed to be a real term, but um, it was one that she coined, I think. And she also ransomed prisoners. So that's how they made a little bit of money. They would capture Westerners off of the East India Company ships, for example, An officer on such a ship, Richard Glasspool, was one of them. And it's through his diary and through the diaries of other people like him that we actually have records of how these Chinese pirates lived. So, yeah, that's the outright piracy side of the business. But there was also some other other deals going on, um, other hustles. Madame Chung had a massive protection racket where she sold, quote, safe passage protection um, on land and by sea. So basically, we, the pirates, won't mess with you if you, if you pay <laughs> us a certain amount of money. And Glasspool recounts being on one of these fee-collecting missions in 1809 uh, when the pirates took in 500 junks and sailed up the Pearl River, anchored by a village, and basically threatened to burn down the town and murder all of its inhabitants unless they agreed to pay a fee, and this is a little funny, a fee of $6,000. Yeah, we're not really sure what currency he's referring to at the time. Considering this 1809, um, and but, he was a captive at this time, so I'm not really sure how he got the exact figures of the agreement. Um, I know that he was forced to participate in this, but um, he that's the figure he threw out there. Um, but, I mean, it gives us an idea, at least, of um, of these rackets that they would pull, not actually doing the burning and pillaging, but threatening to do so. Yeah, and that's some protection, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Thank you for not burning us down. Let us protect immediately. you. <laughs> or else... So because the pirates operated on such a large scale, Madame Chung required written records of everything. All of their loot that they got was entered into a warehouse register by the pirate's purser. So here were some rules. No pirate could retain anything without submitting it for inspection. So you couldn't just go plunder some ship and then shove stuff in your pocket. Hide it in your own chest. Right. You had to submit it and have it reviewed. Declare it, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then about 20% of that went to the original captor and the rest was put into a public fund. After that, any pirate who wanted to withdraw from the common fund made a written application to the secretary of the storehouse, who was known as the ink and writing master. So it was very businesslike. Yeah, and you can imagine that would be for boat repairs or maybe a few hadn't brought in any loot for a while and you still needed to keep basic operations going. Yeah, that was what the public fund was used for, I think. Everything that um, didn't go to the captors, it was sort of spread out among the people who maybe hadn't plundered a ship recently. I mean, I I think that's really interesting. Again, it it doesn't quite fit with how we think of pirates, but it all seems very civilized and I guess that's why it it doesn't add up exactly in our in our own 
viewing the pirates, but don't think it's too businesslike either, because there's still plenty that's that's bloody. There's still plenty of carnage. And Glasspool, for instance, we just mentioned him. He recalls seeing entire villages destroyed and men, women, and children massacred. Um, Madam Chung certainly didn't shy away from that kind of thing. No, she didn't at all. In fact, it's said that she paid her pirates cash for each head that they brought back from the, any of their assaults. So you could find these pirates fighting with as many as five or six bloody heads thrown over their shoulders, tied together by their hair. Yeah, that's, that's a, an image. Kind of thinking of onions or something, but bloodier. Um, but, I mean, it, she definitely had effective methods. That That was an effective program for the pirates. Yeah, I would say so. At the height of her reign on the South China Sea in 1809, she controlled about 2,000 ships and more than 80,000 people. So this, a lot of people say this makes her perhaps the greatest pirate of all time, by the numbers at least. Yeah, and that kind of greatness, of course, does attract the attention of the law, including the Chinese government, uh, who wanted to hunt Chung down and, and put a stop to her operation. And they try several times to stage carefully planned attacks. And they just couldn't make a dent on Chung's forces because there were so many of them and they were well organized and they were sneaky and hard to find. Yeah. So then the emperor, the Chinese emperor had to change his tune. It was basically a shift from we want to get you to, okay, if we can't beat them, then you guys join us. So they started offering the pirates amnesty instead of trying to just get them outright. Their settlements that they offered included a pardon, cash, and land. So this started to cause some dissension among the pirates. A lot of them wanted to take the offer and started surrendering. Even Chung Pao wanted to. And eventually Chung Yi Sao comes around to the idea, too. She saw the advantages of surrender, and so finally she relented. On April 18, 1810, she went with a delegation totally unarmed, a delegation of 17 women and children, to see the governor general of Canton and negotiate. And a few days later, the surrender happened. And the terms she got were extraordinary. You'd think at, at best she'd be allowed to to live freely or something, or maybe mm-hmm. get to keep a tiny little bit of her money. But she does quite well for herself. They get to keep several of their junks, and they got a large sum of money, too. And now several pirates were actually made legitimate and allowed to join the army. But Chung Pao was actually given the rank of lieutenant, and he ends up having this illustrious military career in China after that, rising to the post of colonel. He dies in 1822 at the age of 36, reportedly of natural causes, but this was really considered this great meteoric rise for someone who started out as a fisherman's son, and really twice because he rose up the ranks as a pirate, (laughs) and then he came out as a civilian and rose up the the ranks as a military guy. Totally legit. And Madame Chung did pretty well for herself, too. She spent the rest of her years in Canton, quote, leading a peaceful life so far as was consistent with the keeping of an infamous gambling house. So, I mean, how appropriate is that? Yeah, she's still a bad girl. What are you going to do if you are a retired pirate? Keep a house of ill repute. It makes sense. She died in 1844 at the age of 69. And, um, yeah, I, I think that's a... Pretty amazing pirate story. They they so often end in the gallows. It's 
It's interesting to see one that has kind of a happy ending for pirates, except for all the decapitated people along the way. Yeah, except for them. We feel bad for them. But for her, she ended up in a lot, a much better place, I think, than other female pirates did. Molly and Kristen focused, like we said, on um, Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed, and they ended up getting captured, as many pirates tended to, and ended up, you know... The law caught up to, caught up with them in the end. Yeah, but I guess Madame Chung, she knew when to, to get out of the pirating business and to take the good offer, and luck was on her side. And that brings us to listener mail. We have a letter here from Samuel in Philadelphia, and he says... Hi, Sarah and Dublina. I'm a big fan of your show and enjoy your podcasts. Usually I don't have much to say, but I want you to reconsider your admiration for the quote, Do you know who I am? when the black millionaires was stopped by a policeman. Would you have the same admiration for the quote if it were said by a white male millionaire? I think that kind of attitude is actually pretty reprehensible no matter who says it. Submitted for your reconsideration, best Sam. So, yeah, we thought this was very interesting. I thought this was a really interesting letter, and it was one that I really thought about for a long time. Um, I think Sarah and I both went back to that quote and thought about, you know, the feelings that we expressed when we said it. And I guess I didn't really think of it as admiration for what she was saying. I think we were both just sort of marveling and impressed to find a quote, a direct quote from this woman who history seems to know so little about. So just to be able to hear something in her own voice, I think, Sarah, you put it well, you said it's like almost like hearing Hollywood gossip in a way. I know, I think it (laughs) appealed to my my secret love for celebrity gossip. But I mean, I like the word you chose marveling too. I mean, I was kind of marveling at the situation because in a way it's so ironic. Of course the policeman knows Mm -hmm. who she is. How many female black millionaires were there driving around in silver-plated cars at the time. You know, I think he knew who she was already without her having to even say anything. But just, I, I think it's a fascinating situation that it, it could even develop and that she'd be able to even say something like that. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I think we were both, rather than really admiring the words themselves, we were both fascinated to hear her say this in 1920 in the United States in a time when women like her, black women, didn't really have much of a voice. And she could say this, do you know who I am? And it really meant something. So that was more how we were coming at it, I think. And definitely not encouraging anyone to be a jerk and try to get out of their traffic ticket. No, not Pulling at a all. celebrity move. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, too, because the day we received this email, I went home and I was watching, or, you know, just vegging out in front of an episode of Sex and the City or something. And one of the characters said that. She said, do you know who I am? You know, fancy rich New York lady. And I thought, oh, well, I can totally see how that is just reprehensible. Yeah. Well, anyways, thank you for giving us something to to mull over for a bit. It's always fun to to look back on an episode and and think about what you said a little more carefully and and think about what the first black millionaire said, too, because it is an interesting quote any way you look at it. Definitely. Thank you for the letter. If you want to send us more email, give us more stuff to think about, send us your ideas, 
Maybe send us your favorite pirate story to go along with today's episode. Feel free to email us. It's historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. Or you can look us up on Facebook. And we're also at Twitter at Missed in History. And if you want to learn a little bit more about how pirates work, we have a story with that exact title on our website. You can look it up by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. 